I think Andrew McCabe has made a fool out of himself over the last couple of days, and he really looks to me like sort of a poor man's J. Edgar Hoover. He's a, uh, I think he's a disaster. And what he was trying to do was terrible, and he was caught. I'm very proud to say we caught him. So we'll see what happens, but he, uh, he is a disgraced man. Based on the information that we had, we thought that a potential threat to national security might exist. I think that the Southern District of New York investigation into Michael Cohen has spawned an outlet. And remember, that was a referral from Mueller. That is a, a case that a lot of Trump advisors think presents a greater threat to him than the Mueller probe does. Welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. It has, from the start, been obvious that Donald Trump does not like the most basic aspects of our political system, that he does not accept independent powers, that he does not like it when the press criticizes him, that once he became president, he did not think that his power should be limited, that it is legitimate for judges to rule against him or Congress to rein in his actions. And yet the actions he has taken for the last two years have sometimes felt a little bit like a drill. He talked a big game about the Washington Post and CNN, even calling them enemies of the people. But he didn't really take much action in order to stop them from publishing what he consistently called fake news. Well, all of this has changed with his declaration of a spurious national emergency last week. National emergencies really pose a puzzle in political theory. Since the time of Cicero, people have recognized that one of the most important tasks of public officials is to protect citizens, and that in moments of genuine national emergency, that might require them to bypass laws that are usually in effect. At the same time, they have also recognized that an abuse of emergency powers could allow any politician to turn themselves into a dictator, as has repeatedly happened in history, whether you think of Fernando Marcos in the Philippines or the classic case Adolf Hitler in Germany. The United States has withstood the authoritarian temptation of emergency powers in two ways. First, Americans have rarely voted for a politician or a political party with openly authoritarian ambitions. And secondly, when American presidents have started to act in an authoritarian manner, even their own allies have often turned on them. Well, both of those safeguards no longer apply. Donald Trump is clearly attempting to undermine the rule of law and the balance of power, and his allies are flopping onto their stomachs. Think of somebody like Mitch McConnell, who had claimed in the last weeks that the national emergency would not be acceptable to Congress, but now that Trump has caught a national emergency, he has immediately fallen into line and expressed his support. So what's going on right now is not a drill. It is a very real attempt by the executive to take unconstitutional powers, to override the express will of Congress based on a clearly fake emergency. So what happens at this point really matters. Will the courts resist this unprecedented attempt to increase the powers of the executive. 
Will Republicans have the decency to stand up for the Constitution and for the powers of their own body, Congress, or will they simply enable Donald Trump once again? This is not a drill. This is a really urgent moment in how we are going to respond to Trump's authoritarian instincts. Today I'm talking about a very different topic. I have Dr. Ted Johnson, who's a senior fellow at the Brennan Center, here to talk about the actual political views of ethnic minorities in this country and especially African Americans, because he argues we often simplify, caricature, misunderstand their political point of view. It's a really great conversation. I am sure you're going to enjoy it. But first, here's the tweets. Wow, so many lies. By now disgraced acting FBI director Andrew McCabe, he was fired for lying. And now his story gets even more deranged. He and Rod Rosenstein, who was hired by Jeff Sessions, another beauty, looked like they were planning a very illegal act and got caught. There is a lot of explaining to do to the millions of people who had just elected a president who they really like and who has done a great job for them with the military, that's economy, and so much more. This was the illegal and treasonous insurance policy in full action. I never said anything about Andrew McCabe's wife other than she, they, should not have taken large amounts of campaign money from a crooked Hillary source when Clinton was under investigation by the FBI. I never called his wife a loser to him. Another McCabe made up lie. Nothing funny about tired Saturday Night Live on fake news, NBC. Question is, how do these networks get away with these total Republican hit jobs without retribution? Likewise, for many other shows. Very unfair and should be looked into. This is the real collusion. California now wants to scale back their already failed fast train project by substantially shortening the distance so that it no longer goes from L.A. to San Francisco. A different deal and record cost overruns. Send the federal government back the billions of dollars wasted. Dr. Ted Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center. Ted. Welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. So there is this sort of assumption that people make that because African-Americans vote Democratic in sort of huge numbers, over 90% in many elections, they are all sort of far to the left and right. there's not a lot of diversity in their political views. They all vote for the same political parties, so they must all kind of be on the same page. Right. A lot of your work is trying to debunk that myth. Why do we get this so wrong? What are we wrong about here? The myth of the black monolith is probably the most prevailing myth in American politics today. It's the most enduring for sure. I mean, we're talking about five decades of the largest minority in the electorate voting 80, 90 percent for the same party without fail in every congressional and presidential election. But if you say the words black monolith, most of black America is going to push back on you immediately because they're pushing back against the suggestion that because our votes tend to be very uniform, that our politics are too. And that's simply not true. So there is a black monolith. 
It's an electoral monolith. It is our voting behavior on election day is quite uniform, in fact, more uniform than any other race or ethnicity in American politics and has been, again, for five, six decades. But when you look at the politics of black Americans, it is just as diverse as every other race, ethnicity in the country. So let's start with one obvious descriptor, right? I mean, I often talk here about liberal democracy. Somebody was just making fun of me for that. <laughs> and I mean liberal, not in a political sense, not right. liberal, conservative, and so on. But that's obviously an important label in American politics. Are you liberal? Are you moderate? Are you conservative? Right. Now, obviously, most Democrats tend to be more on the liberal side. Most Republicans tend to be more on the conservative side. African-Americans virtually all vote for Democrats. So they're all liberal, right? <laughs> right. Wrong. Wrong. Yeah, okay, why? exactly. Right. So if there's a recent Pew poll canvassed black voters, actually black Democrats, and asked them where they fell on the spectrum from conservative to moderate to liberal. And only 25 or so percent said that they were liberal. 71 percent said that they were either moderate or conservative. And this is because there's a great book out by Tasha Philpott, a professor down at UT Austin, called Conservative But Not Republican. And what she found is that black conservatism is not synonymous with black republicanism. Whereas white conservatives tend to be white Republicans, black conservatives tend to be Democrats, but hold conservative views. Let's get into that. So I saw a similar poll in which I may be butchering the numbers a little bit here, but it was something like 40% of African-Americans considered themselves moderate, 30% conservative, and perhaps 27% liberal. I think that's the same which one. Was, yep. Yeah, which is the, the lowest number of a free, right? Which that's is really right. striking. Now, do they just mean something different by conservative? Do they just mean like I'm a little more conservative than like my niece who's like crazy lefty? Right. Or, or are they actually conservative? So when we're saying I'm conservative, what does that mean? So it's really interesting. It's not an orthodox conservatism as we think about sort of in political science sort of terms. Conservatives to black Americans means different things to different parts of the black electorate, depending on region, depending on religiosity, etc. So for some black folks, being conservative just means that they're very religious and go to church. For some black folks, being conservative means that they believe in fiscal conservatism. For some black folks, it means being a social conservative and believing in a two, you know, man and a woman, two-parent household. But there is no collection of beliefs that comprise conservatism in the black sense. But that's really true for whites as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I know conservatives like, like David French, who are deep social conservatives. I know others who are sort of pro-big business, but they're absolutely fine with gay marriage and so on. And they both call themselves conservative. Right. The difference is that white conservatives, they don't have this one prevailing issue that determines everything else in their lives like black Americans do. And that's the issue of civil rights. So, right. Right. So, so civil rights effectively turns all black people into single issue voters, even and it mutes the conservatism in their politics, because in our binary political system, you choose between the party that's progressive on civil rights or the party that's at best status quo. It's no great miracle that in the age of Donald Trump, a huge majority of African-Americans ain't voting for Donald Trump. Exactly. I mean, that seems obvious, <laughs> right? right? I guess what I'm trying to understand is you take the very important issue of civil rights, which obviously does drive a black electoral monolith mm -hmm. off the table. Is there then still a systematic difference between an African-American who calls themselves conservative and a white voter who calls themselves conservative? Or do they end up essentially having pretty similar views about, say, gay marriage on one end or transgender rights, right? So sort of that range of social issues. 
Then let's say as a second set of issues, sort of economic policy is a black conservative, even for the call themselves conservative, actually far to the left to a white conservative on the economy, mm. or are we basically do they have the same views about taxes and regulation and so on? So that's a tough question. And it's because we don't have a whole lot of times in American history where we can actually see this play out and what would happen. But there is one period between the 20s and 40s where Democrats and Republicans, particularly at the state level, were indistinguishable in their views on civil rights. There's a great paper out, Parties and Platforms, I think, describes this. And what these authors find, but, but what other scholars have found, is that the politics of the party identification of black folks between the 20s and 40s, to the extent they could vote, were essentially split between Democrats and Republicans, both mm. in voter ID and in voting behavior, again, in places where they could vote. And this is because when there isn't that one issue that sort of collects the group behind the same consciousness and corrals their behavior, they then exercise their politics in other ways based on region, economic circumstances, etc. That said, I don't think if you were to remove civil rights as a predominant issue in black voting behavior today, I don't think you would suddenly see 40% of black people rush to the Republican Party because, again, black conservatism is different than white conservatism. But so what's that difference? I mean, obviously, we have different views as to whether or not we should have voter ID laws that try to disenfranchise right. African-Americans. Right? Right, but, but that's but, a civil but, rights but, issue. Exactly. But do they have different views on the economy, for example? No, they don't. But the issue is, so let's say in, in the conservative view, lower government footprint, less regulations, encouraging small business, private entrepreneurship, etc., but white conservatism tends to still have a racial resentment component to that. And so we watched black people be lynched after Reconstruction in the South because as they created their own stores that competed with white stores, they were now an economic threat to white citizens. And so we can both believe in lower regulations, both believe in small businesses, but when there's an economic threat, a criminal threat, a security threat, a threat to housing values or prestige of the local school, racial resentment tends to rear its head in white conservative circles in a way that it will not rear its head in black conservative circles. Mm -hmm. Black conservatism is more, I hesitate to use the word, a champion of segregation or advocating for segregation, but it's this belief that if we cannot rely on government to fulfill its promise to us, then we have to figure out a way to make ourselves viable. This is the Booker T. Washington argument about black self-determination and bootstrapping. Mm -hmm. To the extent that black conservatism and white conservatism is different, I think it hinges on racial resentment on one end and sort of this desire for black empowerment or what Nixon called black capitalism on the black conservatism side, mm -hmm. saying that we don't need the government's help. We don't need white people's help. We can do this on our own if you would just leave us alone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So let's go to the left side of a political spectrum. I mean, I've sometimes thought that there's a slight misconception about the democratic base at the moment. When you ask somebody to describe the democratic base, I think they would be likely to say something along the following lines, which is a set of people who are pretty consistently liberal or even woke, if you will, on social issues, who are sort of far to the left on economic issues, who are mostly people of color, who perhaps tend to be a little bit younger than the average voter in the United States, who are more likely to be female than the average voter in the United States. And I wonder whether that actually is an amalgam of two quite different groups, which is to say that when you look at the people who actually are consistently woke on social issues and the people who are far left on the economy, precisely for the reasons you've outlined, right. that most African-Americans don't consider themselves liberal, they tend to be white and they tend to be highly educated. They basically tend to be, you know, the kinds of college and grad school grads in metropolitan centers who, sorry folks, 
are disproportionately likely to listen to Trumpcast. <laughs> Whereas actually, not exclusively, obviously, but a lot of the people of color in the coalition are on average a little less highly educated, perhaps make a little bit less money, and actually not consistently work on social issues, who actually on economic issues definitely want a better higher minimum wage, definitely want better health care, but aren't interested in sort of debating socialism. Do you think there's something to that characterization or am I being too simple? Certainly black folks in the Democratic Party are a more nuanced group of Democrats than sort of the white liberals or the woke whites or whatever the terminology is. It's not a package deal, you know. So if you are for Medicare for all, then it's almost assumed if you're white and for Medicare for all that you're also for the Green New Deal, that you're also for free college, that you're also for, you know, this is a package deal of progressivism. That's not the case among black Democrats. Certainly, black Democrats want a stronger social safety net because economic threat is one of the predominant ones in our community. But if you look at an issue like education, the majority of black families prefer school choice to public school, Hmm. not because they don't want their kids to have strong public schools to attend, but because history has shown us that the public schools in our neighborhoods are not invested at the same rate as other places. Right. So choice, even if all of the choices are terrible, having a choice is a level of agency that we have not had the luxury of exercising. And so we'd rather have a choice of five bad schools than being mandated to go to the one terrible one down the street. And so that's a break from the Democratic platform on education. Frankly, it's a break from the NAACP on education. Hmm. So there is no package black uh, form of Democratic participation. There's sort of like black Democrats, you're a Democrat because the group consciousness requires that be the party you belong to because of civil rights concerns. It flows from the things we've been talking about earlier, which is that if you're a white voter, you don't have this overarching interest of self-protection to Right. Before the party of civil rights. So if you have a pretty consistently liberal worldview, you're going to end up being a democratic primary voter. If you don't, then you might call yourself an independent, you might call yourself a conservative. Whereas with African Americans, they have a strong reason which stems, frankly, from the deeply racialized and in some parts racist politics pursued by the Republican Party right. to become part of a democratic coalition. But as a result, they're much more heterogeneous because, you know, they've been driven into it. And actually, some of them may agree with a Democratic Party platform on this and that thing, but have strong disagreements on other parts of it. What about economic issues? One of the things that strikes me is that the basic situation of, say, whites and blacks is quite different with respect to the economy in two ways which sort of run against each other. The first is that on average, whites have much more wealth and they also have significantly higher incomes. And so in a way, the economy is going better for them. On the other hand, however, most whites haven't experienced real economic progress over the last 30 or 40 years, which is true of the American worker in general. So from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of an average American doubles. From 1960 to 1985, it doubles again. Mm. Since 1985, it's been stagnant. Mm -hmm. Now, the situation of African Americans is a little paradoxical because on the one hand, they obviously have, unfortunately, far less wealth, Mm -hmm. significantly lower incomes on average, but they've actually experienced progress over the course of their lives because they're doing better now than they were 25 or 30 years ago. And, And so I wonder how that shapes a different set of hopes and expectations of the economy and might drive actual preferences of economic policy. Yeah, it's true. But some of that has to do with where we started 60 years ago. You know, Jim, Jim Crow. So improvement from Jim Crow is going to happen just as society desegregates some. But I take your point. That said, since 2000, the only racial ethnic group that has not seen real wages grow in America are black folks. Their real dollars mm-hmm. today is like 
$100 less than they were making real dollars in 2000. And so stagnation has visited us and is dwelling there. The other part of this is things like unemployment rate. President Trump keeps talking about how he's gotten the black employment rate to the lowest ever, but it's still twice the rate of white employment. If you look at a city like D.C., white unemployment is something like one and a half, two percent. Black unemployment is like 12 or 13 percent. And so where good American economic policy and good fortune has helped the tide rise all the boats, Mm -hmm. the disparity has not really decreased at all. And the wealth gap has increased. The unemployment gap has remained at two times the rate, you know, since the 50s. The wage gap has not decreased. And, And so, yes, overall, we're all doing better. But the disparity means that black people are still left behind. Last hired, first fired. The housing bubble burst on us first. And so the economic prospects of black America are rejecting being the canary in the coal mine for everything bad in America. And then the last to benefit from all the good things. So even though there's been an sort of an overall benefit to everyone being left behind, even as we all benefit, is a real problem. That's interesting. So I saw a few polls, and you know this stuff a million times better than I do, which suggested that the expectation of the future is a little in- the inverse of that, which is to say mm-hmm. that when you ask most white people, how do you think your children are going to fare economically, right. better than you, about the same, as good as you, worse than you, they are much more likely to say worse than me or even about the same compared to African-Americans, who are much more likely to say, I actually think we're going to make progress. That's right. So that's interesting that you're saying that that hope for the future is not actually rooted in any recent experience. It's just we have a lot of way to go up, I suppose. So what explains that optimism? And perhaps I'm wrong about the optimism. No, no, the opti- no you're absolutely right that especially young black people tend to be the most optimistic in some of these surveys and polls. And this is kind of where I fall back to like, I'm a country boy from North Carolina and we went to church three, four times a week. And I think there is a strong religious strain in black protest and black approaches to politics and economics where the belief that things will get better is the only thing that sustains you sometimes. Mm. And so, and I think that is rooted, I mean, the civil rights movement was rooted in Christianity. The respectability politics was a strategy born out of the black church. And that strain of thinking still exists within black America. It's not exercised in the same way, but that we shall overcome spirit still prevails. And I mean, if anything, it is the spirit of 76. You know, it's like this is the the same spirit that led the country's formation. It's the creation is the same spirit that black folks carry with us. And it's the spirit that has sustained us through slavery, through Jim Crow, and then through a nation that is ridiculously disparate on socioeconomic indicators. Interesting. So what set of preferences does that translate into for economic policy? When you see the sort of debate that's now burgeoning the Democratic Party from Bernie Sanders and AOC on one end to perhaps somebody like Joe Biden on the other end, I'm not sure if that's a sensible one-dimensional scale either, but we'll take it for the moment. Where would the bulk of African-American voters fall on that or in how many categories? I mean, take the question as you will, slice them up into as many different pieces as you will. Yeah, it's tough. I think when we assign specific policy proposals to specific characters, black Americans are a pragmatic bunch. And so they will be more likely to trust a character than they will be to buy into specific policy proposals, because who knows if those proposals ever come to fruition. So whatever Joe Biden's pitching, as long as it's rational, is probably going to get more black people to support it than whatever Bernie Sanders is because of the people. So you're implying that they're not inclined to trust Bernie Sanders. Why is that? That's not it. I think it's they're more inclined to trust the known quantity in Biden and not necessarily disparaging Sanders. And it's the same thing that happened in 08. Before Barack Obama won Iowa, black voters were behind Hillary Clinton, including the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus, Mm. where Obama was a member. But once he showed he was a viable candidate, 
Now we have the audacity to dream, I see. you know, for lack yeah. of a better term. I always forget this American expression. They want the bird in the hand and not two in the bush or something. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. right. I want clear, concrete improvements that have some real likelihood of happening. If somebody tells me some great utopia, that sounds lovely, but you know what? I'm, I, That's right. I'm not interested. That's right. Because if they fail, for us going backwards is an untenable position. Mm. It's violence. It's terrorism. It's rampant discrimination. It's the ruining of future generations. And so we don't have the luxury of thinking big every election. We have to think pragmatic first and then match our dreams to our pragmatism where suitable. And, and Obama's a case of that. That sort of explains what I perceive to be from some of the polls that I've dug into the economic policy preferences of a lot of African-Americans, where, first of all, there's some who actually just have economic views which should drive them towards the Republican Party. But again, for the reasons we outlined, right. they still vote Democrat. And so they obviously have a preference for more moderate economic policies. And then there's others who kind of have economic views that squarely fall within the Democratic coalition, but who are much more interested in small, incremental, concrete change. So they want raising of a minimum wage. Right. They want reforming Obamacare to make it sustainable and make it work better, but they're not as interested in Medicare for all because they think, who knows whether that's going to happen. It sort of tends to be not moderate policy positions, right? It's not that it's sort of like if the Republicans want to slash taxes on corporations by 5% right. and slash them by 2.5%. It's not that kind of right. thing, right? But it's a preference for progressive change that is concrete and incremental over big system change. I think that's right. Perfect example of this, the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs in the country is black women. If there were policies that would allow the Small Business Administration to do microloans or would federalize the credit score system so that black folks can buy homes and get storefronts and strip malls for their businesses, if the regulations were less so that barbers didn't have to pay 1500 bucks a year for a license for something they've been doing for three decades. This sounds like a Republican platform. Hmm. Less regulation, encouraging small business, and this is not the case. When you look at the Small Business Administration's lending statistics, they lend to black folks less and disproportionately less. When you look at storefronts in black areas, they're considered high risk. And so the insurance rates are super high and black folks can't get the loans or the credit mm. to get into them because of the rates are so high. So the structures are geared to suppress the very urges that we're trying to put forth into the economy. So it's not all just, you know, more job guarantees, higher minimum wage. I mean, a lot of it are, cons you know, so-called conservative approaches to business that are being suppressed because we're being excluded. So this is interesting, again, because speaking of the bundling of different issues, I feel like at least a certain kind of old school country club Republican mostly talk about opportunity, right. and deregulation and so on. Right. right. And then there's another set of economic preferences, which is about taking the fight to a system that's rigged and that has racial injustice written deep into it. Right. And what you're saying is that, again, a lot of African-American voters and certainly those who are part of a democratic coalition probably think both of those things. That's right. The system right? is they, rigged. The system is rigged against us. And we also need opportunity. Right? And we want more opportunities. That's exactly, exactly right. Yeah. That's right. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina attached an opportunity agenda to the Trump tax cut, which creates opportunity zones, which incentivizes private investors to put their money into these opportunity zones to defer taxes on those investments. And it's a long-term good mm -hmm. deal for them. But- if you're an investor, that money tends to end up in places that are soon to be gentrified or that are safe investments. You're not putting it in the middle of inner city Baltimore and hoping that in 10 years, your money piled with others is going to mm. completely reform parts of black Baltimore. And so black folks want that private investment. They would like government to either do it yourself or let private folks do it. 
But the way that it's structured doesn't require those dollars to come specifically to black places because then we're talking about quotas, which are unconstitutional, frankly. Now we're trying to get the best of both government and private sector in a system that's completely rigged against us. And it turns out that nothing ends up working for us. And the only thing that we can really rely on is the federal government with the right person at the helm. Given all of these things we've been talking about, given the fact that, as you say, ultimately who black voters support tends to be a question of trust, which kinds of 2020 candidates, and you can name names, so you can just describe in more generic terms, could you imagine winning the trust of black primary voters and which candidates are going to really struggle? This one is tough. I think if Biden gets into the race, I think he has the early advantage over everyone else, including Kamala Harris and Cory Booker with black voters. And that's simply because we know who he is. We know what he's about. It's the safe bet to make. And again, this is why black voters supported Hillary Clinton in 08. That said, if Kamala Harris gets through Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada, the first three primaries, faring third or better in all of them, I could see her going to South Carolina and cleaning house Mm. and then going into the Super Tuesday with a lot of the Deep South black belt states and doing really Really well. well. Mm. Cory Booker, I think, will have a more difficult pathway there. The markers that Kamala Harris has in Howard University, her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, these are well-known things. Cory Booker doesn't have those markers. His appeal to black voters is going to be different than Kamala Harris's. You think the fact that Kamala Harris went to Howard University and was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha... Um, sort of trumps the fact that, you know, her, her mother is Indian rather than Absolutely. African-American, but her husband is white. That is more important. Absolutely. And we'll see if I'm right. But the big question will be is if Booker and Harris are both doing well, then which way will black voters go mm-hmm. between the black man or the black woman? All of the research should suggest that if Kamala Harris is the choice, black men and women will get behind her. Black women more than black men, but only by five, six, seven percent. Mm-hmm. And if Cory Booker is the one, black men and black women will get behind him at 90 plus percent. But if they're competing against one another in this a relatively same position, you're likely to see black men peel off from Kamala Harris's support and go to Cory Booker. And that's just the latent sexism within. That we all share in common. That's That's depressing. I I frankly don't think we'll get to that point. I think there will be, by the time we get to South Carolina, I think there will be a clear three or four front runners Mm -hmm. and black folks will make their choice between them, even if there's someone else at position seven or eight still in the race. Well, I'm finding this argument so clarifying for so many reasons. And one of them is that for a long time, basically since 2016, there's been this sort of odd debate in the Democratic Party about whether we should try and mobilize our base, by which people, I think, to a large extent meant African-Americans, or whether we should sort of go after moderate white voters. And it's not clear to me from what you said right now that those two things are necessarily mutually exclusive choices. I think that someone like Kamala Harris could run in a way that would actually be very appealing to more moderate white voters, and certainly someone like Joe Biden could. And if you say that both of those could actually really excite African-American voters and get them out to the polls, then perhaps this sort of big strategic debate we've been having about do you go for flipping Florida and, you know, Georgia, or do you go for trying to gain back Michigan is sort of so much cleverness by half. Yeah, it's difficult because the party has moved left since the last election. I don't know if those Obama-Trump voters, those white working class folks that switched from 12 to 16, if they're willing to buy into a candidate that is further left than Hillary Clinton was and further left than Obama was, especially if that candidate's black. So if you have a black candidate that's left of Obama, left of Clinton, I don't know if that black candidate brings back these white working class Mm -hmm. folks in. 
But here's the kicker. I don't know that they need to. Hillary Clinton lost the election by about 80,000 votes in three states, three states that have large urban centers with black populations, Philadelphia, Detroit and Milwaukee. And so I think Kamala Harris will mobilize voters that Hillary Clinton did not and running the exact same campaign that she ran with policies a little to the left, Mm. but with her descriptive representation for other parts of the electorate probably beats a Trump if he performs at the level he did in 16. What we don't know is if it's a Kamala Harris, how will her candidacy mobilize voters that don't want a woman in the office and Mm. don't want a black woman in particular in the office? I think there's a lot of assumptions we tend to have about what some Democratic strategists have called the inevitable demographic majority. Mm. The fact that by 2044, according to one Pew study, there's some studies that give slightly different dates. A majority of the electorate is going to consist of minorities, and so Democrats are going to have a sort of natural majority. I'm personally skeptical of that for a few reasons, including real questions about whether all of those people who are sort of technically minorities, according to this Pew study, will actually think of themselves as minorities in any meaningful sense 30 years from now. I think there's some evidence to show that a lot of them already don't. There's also questions, for example, about the voting behavior going forward of Asian Americans Mm. and other groups. But just focusing on African Americans, do you think that at least for that group, this is a relatively safe bet that 30 years from now, African Americans, despite their political heterogeneity, are still going to be an electoral monolith? Mm. Or do you think that if Trump is defeated in 2020, (laughs) can only hope. And if, which is hard to imagine right now, some kind of There's a real reform of a Republican Party in which they might stay quite socially conservative in certain respects. They might stay quite economically conservative, but they do actually say, no, we embrace civil rights and we no longer are going to have racialized politics. How long would it take until the black voters whose opinions on Medicare for all or whose opinions on gay marriage resemble that of an average Republican voter would actually leave the electoral monolith and go back to the Republican Party? That's tough. I don't think the changing demographics in the country is going to have an influence on how black people decide to vote. I think the parties will have to wrestle with who they're going to target, who's going to be in their coalition. But I think black voting behavior won't change as a function of our changing demographics. The open question is, will the Republican Party change? Right. And how long would it take for what political scientists sometimes call the brand effect to wear off? Exactly. Right. Right. So what American history teaches us is that Someone is going to become the liberal party. Someone is going to become the party that holds on to power by eroding institutions and disempowering systems in order to hold on to power with a minority of the population. And I think the voter suppression tactics we're seeing now in the various states, this is the leading edge indicator of a party looking to hold on to power with a minority of the country no matter what the country looks like. So that's the danger. And if that's the case, then black folks will only redouble their efforts to Mm. beat Republicans if they are, in fact, the party that does this. The other part, though, is let's say the Republicans get just as progressive on civil rights as the Democratic Party and they become indistinguishable there. And now this is about more traditional arguments between conservatism and liberal as we think about it in the contemporary sense. I still don't think the black group consciousness will erode because the parties are indistinguishable on civil rights. Maybe at the school board, mayor, state office level, you'll see some mm-hmm. 60-40 splits between black folks if civil rights is off the table and the brand is the Republican brand has been sort of redeemed. But nationally, I think there will always be a unifying cause because I don't think racism is something that's going to sort of fall off the table. And so if civil rights is if everyone's good there, 
but racism is being exercised in other ways, hmm. then black folks are going to corral around one another to sort of stave off the threat of racism. If you want black folks to vote their true political interests, remove racism from the United States, and then you'll see the diversity, as long as it's present, and we have one party that leverages it and another party that doesn't, or one party that's quiet on it and another party that's very loud, or two parties that hold the exact same positions, all of those scenarios, if racism still exists, then black folks are going to bind together to sort of protect our interests, which tend to be our lives and our well-being. Well, I think one thing that that brings out is just as I've said before on this podcast, we have a very deep abiding interest, not just in Democrats standing for the basic rules and norms of liberal democracy and winning every election, because that's not going to happen. Right. We have a big abiding interest in both political parties having a deep commitment to the rules and norms of liberal democracy. Right. In the same way, you're quite pessimistic about the prospects of that, and I fear that I might agree. We have a big abiding interest, not just in Democrats speaking for the interests of African Americans or fighting for civil rights and other very important causes. But if at all possible to have two political parties right. which are committed to civil rights and to not using racial dog whistles and right. other forms of racialized politics. So actually what follows from what you were saying, and I didn't think that I would end the conversation on that, is that if 20 or 30 years from now, African Americans split the vote about equally between the Democratic and the Republican Party or whichever party we may have right. uh, at that point, that would be an indication that we've really accomplished something in our politics. I think so. I think a divided or a split black electorate would signal to the nation that its politics are progressing, specific to civil rights and the race question. Maybe economically we're, we're further screwed than we are now, <laughs> right. but certainly on that question. But, but here's the thing. And here's where my hope sort of rests in all of this. I think the nation is going to have to wrestle with the question of racism one way or another. It has in the past, and sometimes it's been war, sometimes constitutional, men, you know, transformational social policy. But we have to recognize that racism is a threat to the United States, like an existential threat. And at some point, the hope is that we all, no matter what our color is, see that it is in our collective interest not to live in a racist society. Otherwise, the powers that be will always use the racial cleavage to separate us, to break up our solidarity in pursuit of their whatever their elite interests are. And so if we allow racism to exploit us, we are never going to have the country that we profess to be. But if we recognize the threat racism poses to our very existence or to at least having a democratic republic that's multiracial and prosperous, it's racism is going to have to go and, and we're going to have to get behind that notion. Well, there really is no better way of ending this conversation. <laughs> so Dr. Ted Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. Tell us what you think. Our Twitter lines are open. I'm at Yasha Monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before I go, I'd love to invite you to sign up for Slate Plus. For $35 for the first year, you get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, including my own podcast, The Good Fight. Special perks, and best of all, you'll be supporting all of our work. Go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. Johnny D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald J. Trump. You can find him on Twitter at johnnyd23. And I'm Yasha Monk. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
The Trumpcast is airing another episode critical of me. I'm not happy. I'm going to sue them. It's going to go to the Ninth Circuit. We're going to lose. It's going to get appealed. They're going to do another episode. Di Domenico's going to read the tweets again. I'm going to sue them again. It'll get appealed. It'll go to the Supreme Court. They'll do another Trumpcast live somewhere. Then we're going to win, and the Trumpcast will be off the air forever because the The First Amendment doesn't apply to podcasts.